arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. listening to a payphone from the 1960s. Its connection to the murder of Al Compton will rise to important tonight in the episode of the Santa Ana Wind. In Morgan City, former home of Al Compton, Sam pays attention to details and attempts to form a link to Stoller and her sister. As he pushes further, he's confronted by another group of people And he'll know very soon there's more to this than just Al Compton's murder. Here is Episode 3 of The Santa Ana Winds by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 7. Just in case somebody was waiting for me to travel to Morgan City, I avoided the Santa Ana Freeway and took the long loop around the mountains into the high desert via the 15 Freeway North. I would drive over to Barstow and take 58 West past the dry lake where they used to land the space shuttle. The route was longer, but I knew I couldn't be too careful. I was halfway up the Cajon Pass when my cell rang, which was unusual since Don had just broken over San Bernardino in the haze behind the vet. I grabbed my phone. This is Sam. Sam, it's Woody. Thought I'd get your voicemail. Come on, Woody, you're snooping on me. I gazed at the long freight train, sunshine highlighting the gritty slope as it jugged slowly toward Victorville. You want to know if I left the area. Woody mimicked the colonel. Have you left the property, mister? Woody, I'm on my way to Morgan City. I would have gone. I need you down there. Nobody knows where I've gone except Queenie. Really? Said Woody with a low-toned chuckle. To my left was the narrowed old Route 66 from across the country. Chunks of asphalt had disintegrated over the years. You better hope Queenie doesn't broadcast anything sensitive. Woody knew about Capistrano. She won't. I smiled as I neared the crest. I'm visiting Constantine's tonight. I'd love to find that safe that Al Compton broke into. Just go to Compton's house. I'll either go over there or ask questions. And Woody, do me a favor. I still haven't heard from Icky. See what that weasel's got. See if he found out the info on Al Compton's time at Escobedo. The weasel knows all the alumni from Escobedo. Yeah, only because he's one of them. Chow. Maybe Marty already had that information. Knowing who Al Compton served time with at Escobedo might link him to this present-day situation. I considered that only a possibility. The payphone and Constantine seemed more practical, but I had learned in this business don't discard any lead because there's always things you didn't know. The first thing I did when I got to the city limits in mid-afternoon was to find Buckingham Drive and look for Constantine's. The building opened at 6 p.m., it was constructed at the corner of Buckingham Drive and a one-way road called Rockwell Ave. Above were several sets of box windows surrounded by salmon-colored panels. A concrete sidewalk lined with trees followed Buckingham Drive. Cars were parked diagonally in an asphalt lot spread out from a sidewalk across the street. A series of small whitewashed garage doors extended down Rockwell and connected to a five-story black warehouse-type building called Retroactive Components. 
The next block from Buckingham contained a small retail store. One galvanized streetlight pole overlooked the parking lot. I downshifted the vet and instantly figured I wouldn't park anywhere near this place. I looked at the bar in my dusty side mirror and was shocked that the fake Megan Stoller had called from the Parisio Oceanico to this rundown bar room via the Riverside number in some trailer. I drove around the corner and tried to formulate how I was going to approach this place. Going into the bar at night would require a quick getaway, perhaps toward the warehouse on Rockwell. I could see the bar, although in downtown Morgan City, seemed isolated across the lot. Back at the main boulevard, a gold-colored bus passed by the main street and headed south. At that moment, I knew I'd leave the vet in whatever hotel I had checked into, and I could take the bus. The hotel I chose was near the highway, and part of a chain called Northern Alpine Motels. I always ask for a ground floor room just in case I need to leave quickly. Although the Northern Alpine had no restaurant, the rooms were spacious with walls like those of a log cabin. I also parked the vet around back near the maintenance shed. Then I took the bus to the general area of Constantine's and had a dinner at a steakhouse named the Ranchero as darkness fell over the city. I stared at the full moon rising over the mountains. I wore a denim coat, jeans, and a light-colored Stetson. My boots that I had picked up with Woody in Mexico were constructed of a dark, smooth leather. My license and all my credit cards, except a blank gift visa card, were in the vet's glove compartment. Nothing looked right as I stepped outside. Behind me, the eerie glow in the inky blue western sky seemed to hover over the city. Even the flickering streetlight was like a warning alarm to stay away from this place. Why did Stoller call up here anyway? I wandered across the packed parking lot and casually crossed Buckingham. Music filtered outside, mostly from an electric guitar playing early 60s music that Woody liked to play on his fender in his shop's back room. I opened the door. The guitar music emanated from a system in what must have been the garage area. In fact, the white walls and smooth concrete floor looked like a bowling alley into the garage. People danced on a parquet square near the bar to the left as red and blue lights spun around the white walls. I stepped over to the single round table to the left. Elongated colored lights hung from the black ceiling and a few black lights were boxed in the corner booth across from the bar. I ordered a beer from the waitress and looked for the payphone. The wall in front of me was filled with sports photographs back to the 1950s. When I paid for the beer, I asked the aging waitress with the wrinkled face and neck about the payphone. Constantine's also had a layer of transiting smoke that rivaled the smog layer I encountered every time I came in from the north on the 5 freeway. Payphone is in the rest area, honey, she said with a flat affect. Rest area? I asked, taking a gulp of the full beer. Behind the lights. Porkers? She raised her brows with a half grin. You wish, sweetheart. You want to get high, you go into the rest area. Thanks. For a second, I had convinced myself that the fake Stoller was a hooker. She certainly dressed like one. Then I had a brainstorm. I removed my phone and connected to the number Kyle had retrieved from the Riverside area. The ring switched to a faster ring after 10 seconds. Yeah, answered her deep voice. Time to use Woody's gimmick. I switched to a southern accent. I need to talk to Colonel Crocker. He's in the bar. Hold on. Phone bounced around the wall. Out of the darkness, a little guy leaned into the bar. He called for Colonel Crocker, and I chuckled. At least that was the phone called by Stoller's avatar from the Oceanico. Why? 
By the end of my second beer, I suspected this place was connected to that large warehouse. Going into that building at night would be troublesome. And I still had to find Al Compton's house. Before I left the bar, I snapped a complete photo panorama of the interior, minus the restroom, which was surprisingly clean, and told me there was money behind this place. I exited Constantine's, but followed the sidewalk down to the main street. Tomorrow I would check the other side of that warehouse. I caught the yellow bus, glowing inside by night, and took a seat down back. Because my phone sound had been turned off, I missed Bad's call from a few minutes ago. I called him back right away. Bad, where are you? Real Minos. I was able to use my connections to talk to some people at Richmond Express on the outside. I may need to actually go inside to find out what Al Compton was up to and where the shipments went. Risky business, Byron. You don't have to do this. Oh, really? Then maybe I won't, Sam. Where are you, Sam? Morgan City. I found the phone in Constantine's. It's some kind of, some kind of drug place. And there's a whole warehouse connected by adjacent garages. Open to the bar. I have pictures. Send them along. Not a good idea. What if you get caught, Bad? True. I need to scout out Al Compton's house tomorrow. I was only a few blocks from the Northern Alpine. Bad, let me get off this bus. I'll call you right back. You got it, Chief. At the corner across from a shopping place where I stepped onto the sidewalk, I walked around the back of the two-story L-shaped motel and checked my vet. I didn't call Bad back until I was safely in the room. To the best of my knowledge, no one followed me. Bad, what hotel are you staying at? The air conditioner buzzed. Motel Hell. Motel 405 in Rio Mars. You know, Sam, it's a possibility this whole operation is now defunct and they just killed Compton. Yeah, but somebody there knows how those boxes got to another destination. Drugs? Who knows? Let's not call till tomorrow night, say around 8. I would leave your phone in your truck or away, just in case somebody nabs you. Understood. Good luck, Bad, and thanks. On my phone in the middle of the night was a text from Queenie. I sat up in the darkness. M. McGonagall. Don't want info, just need to know if you're okay. S. Crud. I'm okay. Would be better with the Queen Bee. M. McGonagall. Ditto. S. Crud. Smiley face. I smiled, but I was tired. I didn't sleep well. Usually the air conditioner or heater shields out other noises and I zoom right through until morning. And I can compartmentalize all my thoughts about a case. Tonight I worried about that bar, the rest area, and the warehouse building. And should I have pushed Bad into a dangerous situation? Yet I still returned to the image of Lucy's body bag. By morning I skipped the continental breakfast and brought donuts and coffee over from the shopping plaza. I located Compton's house on 165 Fontaine Street. It was a home in a development with a large brown sign that was owned by A.M. Builders in Morgan City, two miles west of the motel in the opposite direction from Constantine's. I took the vet this time but parked up the street at the convenience store. The ranch home's cement faded and was painted with a seafoam color. The grass was scorched. I looked in the windows to a tile floor with scattered newspapers, assorted pens, pencils, and minor debris. The front door was locked, but the garage door did open. I walked inside and immediately closed the door. In the low light, I could see the garage was also empty. The door to the house was locked, so I used the door to the backyard. No grass out there, just dirt. Below the overhang, I walked along the cement platform and got another look inside the house. 
I wondered if there's anything left behind that might give me an idea to what Al Chapter Compton eight. or even his wife was up to. I don't like to take chances I have to. Fold it over, but, but I left the motel unread. after eight. I took a series I didn't of think pictures breaking the into windows. Old, probably and I exited between Compton's house and the next house. Cash in my jeans back at the bed, I checked the photos. My wallet. When I enlarged the counter picture, I was stunned that the newspaper was not from Morgan City area. I spoke the name out loud. The Daily Banner in my jeans in Chamba, pocket, south of Riverside. The paper was two weeks old. I thought about calling the Marty, but then again, Marty didn't have enough guys to come up the here. Window so I called Woody. That option didn't yeah. work. I would cross Woody, the open garage I'll make this short and sweet. Inside stairway. Compton's empty yeah, house in Morgan happen, City, yeah. there's a two-week-old newspaper the unread. Daily Banner in Chamba. I stepped into the alley. I hugged the building as I Listen, moved quietly. I've been to Constantine's. The, the payphone up here is in some drug area off the bar, and, came and there's a warehouse connected I to the bar. No lights on the inside People are going in and out of that drug area. I tapped the payphone links up with the routed phone from Riverside. I'm going to send you those pictures and shots of the house. Where do you think it means? I immediately shined the flashlight inside. Powerful light. Showed a matter of fact, I do. A few strewn boxes and cobwebs. Just keep it all quiet and holding beaches. I lowered myself six feet. Chapter eight. I don't like to take chances unless I have to. When I left the motel after eight, I didn't think that breaking into an old, probably empty warehouse would be a big deal. I had cash in my jeans pocket, and this time I left my wallet, phone, and keys in the motel security box. I exited the city bus two blocks past the warehouse and bar. In my jeans pocket was a powerful flashlight purchased at East Surplus store in the mall. This operation would not take long if I could enter through the slotted window cover in the alley. If that option didn't work, I would cross the open garage area and enter the warehouse through the stairway. Anything could happen then. In the dim light, with the glow of sunset just barely visible in the sky facing the bar, I stepped into the alley. I hugged the building as I moved quietly along the bricks. When I popped on the flashlight beam, the slotted window covering came into view. I saw no lights on the inside of the five-story building. I tapped at the slot with army boots I had bought at the same surplus store. I was shocked when the insert fell into the darkness. I immediately shined the flashlight inside. Powerful light showed an empty basement with a few strewn boxes and cobwebs. I quickly turned, holding Beatrice as I lowered myself six feet down onto a dirt floor. The musty air indicated no one had been down there for quite some time. I reinserted the window slot and swung the white beam past the lally columns ahead. The staircase at the end of the building was wide and I ascended gradually. Near the top were two closed wood panel doors. I could barely hear the bass booming out of Constantine's. Surprisingly, the door is open. Maybe nobody cared about the basement. I shined the flashlight into an expansive old corridor with wainscoting below and white plaster above. Chain glass globe lights hung from the high ceiling. The empty offices contributed to the feeling I was back in the early 20th century. I grabbed at the glass frame door when I saw a blue humongous wall safe in the center office, but the door was locked. The end of the corridor was a lower set of stairs leading to a boarded-up outside door entrance. But to the right, behind the wire glass doors, was a set of rising stairs. I decided to climb to the top of this building and then descend the stairs. As I neared the top, I sensed newer, fresher smells 
and saw a locked thick metal door when I tried to turn the knob. The old slate landing merged with a newer simulated wood plank. I backtracked down to the fourth floor. The older door opened. The corridor head was lined with concrete and laced with wheel tracks. There were no rooms on the side. Rather long shelving units extended down the length of the building. I shined the light inside the shelves. I soon became aware of two things. Everything was stamped Seahorse Plumbing Supply, SHPS, and most of the packages in these bins were related to small plumbing fixtures. Plumbing supplies? I scampered up the stairs to the third floor. The copper pipes and PVC pipe links and connectors left me wondering exactly why a plumbing supply warehouse was connected to a funky bar in Morgan City. And why did Al Compton break into the safe on the first floor? The overhead fluorescent lights instantly blazed. I heard rumbling on the stairs and I climbed like a monkey to the top run of long white PVC pipe rolled to the back of the bin. Slowly I lifted Beatrice upward. Three men in yellow hoodies with Constantines and maroon letters on the back walked briskly into the corridor. They were met by a short, stocky man in a gray sweatshirt. Why would the buzzer go off if no one opened the goddamn door, Bob? yelled the stocky guy. I heard a shortwave radio. I leave for a few days and you morons let everyone in here. Joaquin, is the building secure outside? The radio crackled. I don't see how anyone got inside. If somebody's in here, I'll strangle your neck, dude. What now, Roy? asked one of the guys in the hoodie. Call Rapetta? Wait, he said. Deke, is everything clear up top? Door is locked, Roy. Nobody's been up here. He must know about the master plan. Shut up. Everyone out. I want a presence around the outside of the building. I heard scuffling back to the stairs. I knew if I was going to get out of here, it would have to be through the garages in the bar. I moved to my left, but kicked one of the pipes, and the whole row resettled. All right, yelled Roy from a distance. Then his voice came closer. Move your ass out here right now. I thought about playing drunk, but that wouldn't work with this madman. I waved my Stetson out the top of the bin. Then I thought of shooting my way out, but I would be screwed and hit with attempted murder, actual murder charges. Instead, with my legs bent, I pushed the entire bin of PVC pipes. Dozens of pipes crashed down toward the four men. Come out of there, you bastard, yelled Roy in a booming voice. Then I shot at the fluorescent lights, knocking out all the lights to the left. I gripped the edge of the bin and swung around into the darkness. Three shots smacked the metal bins. I landed on the floor and fired over the pile of pipes. Why not go for broke? I rushed the metal bin as if I were tackling downfield and hit it hard. The ten-foot-high bin with the rest of the pipe crashed on top of the four men. I was already running to the top of the stairs as more rounds were fired at me, splintering the walls. I leaped into the air, slid on my belly with my arms extended, and passed through the wire glass doors and onto the slate staircase. I met no resistance on the third floor, but somebody raced up the stairs from the first floor. I took a big chance and leaped, feet first, into the air at more men in hoodies, knocking them to the floor. That gave me precious seconds to get to the first floor. Get the bastard! Get him! shouted Roy from above. I tucked my gun under my shirt and casually walked into the garage area toward the noisy bar. Apparently no one understood or heard what had happened in the warehouse. 
I sauntered along the bar and into the men's room. Then I crawled through the open window onto Rockwell Ave. I didn't bother looking back toward the warehouse and sprinted across Buckingham Drive and into the parking lot. Getting on the bus meant waiting, which I was not going to do. At that time, an incredible barrage of small arms fire broke out behind me. I saw the flashing fire as I darted into a yard to my right. I jogged down the residential streets toward the Northern Alpine. I was unsure how this Repetta fit into the scheme. In a few minutes, I would get my stuff from security and get the hell out of Morgan City. I had uncovered a link in the chain of their operation. I had just listened to the news when I zipped up the ramp to the 5 freeway and headed south. Moving so fast, I immediately dropped back to 75 miles an hour. That blue safe materialized in my thoughts. I was ecstatic that I had the plumbing information, but it would have been better if I hadn't precipitated a shootout with those hooded clowns in the warehouse. I wanted this master plan they mentioned so I could figure out what Al Compton was up to. Now they knew that someone else had the information on their operation. With their cover blown, Roy and whomever he worked for, even at this early hour, would begin moving stock out of that warehouse. I signaled for the Quail Lake exit ahead and then swung back to Morgan City. Once I was heading north to Morgan City, I called Woody. One thing about Woody, you could wake him in the middle of the night and he talked like it was three in the afternoon. Sam, ain't much in Chandler. I took pics of a couple of office buildings, new road work, and a double-decker retail plaza. What caught my eye south of town was Inland Acres, a community for one and all. The place is huge, and they're building this massive lake hundreds of units, green and lush, right in the sand. Woody, find out who owns the shopping center and the investors in the Inland Project and the office buildings. I hit pay dirt up here in Morgan City. Compton? No, the warehouse. It's full of plumbing supplies. Seahorse plumbing. Good job, Sam. No, not good. I got caught on the fourth floor. Gunfire broke out and I got out by the skin of my teeth. When will you be in Oceanico Beach? just turned around. I'm almost at the Morgan City exit. What, are you crazy? I'm sure they're going to empty that warehouse. Then call Marty. They can send over the Morgan City cops. I need the intel first. Kyle is supposed to give me the owner of that warehouse. It's on Rockwell Ave. Get with him in the morning and track it down. And see if you can find anyone named Repetta from Morgan City. You got it and get on his ass. Get the Chandler info if I don't get it first. Text me when you're on your way back. Yes, sir. I ended the call and shared Woody's apprehension and questioned my own sanity heading down the ramp back to Morgan City. I crept along the River Road south and crossed Buckingham Drive. Two blocks away from the warehouse, I pulled alongside Acorn Park, which had a slight rise by a large monument. I parked in the space next to the gate. I wasn't going to shimmy up that monument, but from the knoll, with the full moon, I could see the corner of the warehouse extending from Rockwell Ave. My gut feeling had been right. Several cars and a huge white cube truck were now parked on Rockwell, headlights blazing. Other cars moved down Buckingham, probably from the parking lot across from Constantine's, but no police. Maybe the cops had been told to leave the warehouse alone. Were they moving out that safe on the first floor? I texted Marty, S. Crud, Seahorse, Plumbing Supplies, 372 Rockwell Ave, Morgan City. 
connected to Compton and the phone call from the fake Megan Stoller. They now know I know about this. They're moving stock out now, on my way back home. I stayed on the hill until a little after 3 a.m. when the truck backed into the alcove. I now knew I had these jokers on the run. What I planned to do was follow the trucks. Instead, I was confronted with a black pickup truck and a red Camaro approaching from the river up Buckingham. I sprinted for the vet and leaped inside. I started the powerful engine and was moving before they got to the park, but they were after me. I shifted into second gear and tried to make myself believe they weren't really after me. But as I accelerated to 60 miles an hour on the streets, both vehicles kept pace. I was now going too fast to get on the connecting highway to the freeway. A few sporadic shots missed the vet, but these guys knew how to drive. Somehow I found Route 58 and backtracked the same way I had come up to Morgan City. I didn't like being alone in the Mojave, otherwise known as being in harm's way and away from civilization. All three vehicles were moving at over 100 miles an hour. Driving at this speed with little sleep was inviting trouble. As I came out the craggy mountains near Tehachapi, I could see the expanse of salt flats fading into the dark south of the highway. I had thought about possibly ruining the vet's suspension by going onto those flats, but a fence blocked my way. I downshifted, braked at the ramp, and swung south toward Mojave at 3.55 a.m., but I left the highway, creating a swirling dust storm behind me. I couldn't see the two vehicles, which means they probably couldn't see me either. I flipped off the headlights, but only for a second, because I knew a wide turn to complete the turn would align me back to the original highway. When I turned on the headlights, I was still away from the road on the bumpy desert surface. Once on the highway with the moon overhead, I extinguished the lights and moved like a snail along the asphalt under the full moon. I could see the dust cloud glowing from the headlights in the flat to the right. I knew that just ahead, Route 14 jutted back to Mojave, but I would have to drive south to Rosamond and then to the San Gabriel Mountains with the lights on and eventually make it to the Antelope Freeway to the 5 Freeway where it met the 210. Around 6 a.m. the sun broke over the mountains. With the morning sun in my eyes, I hit the packed traffic to Los Angeles, and as the winds rocked the vet, I was soon far down the 405 near Long Beach. Maybe I would get some sleep. That would require a text to Woody not to wake me. For a second, I thought about the construction in Chandler, and then I hoped Kyle would get back with the owner of the warehouse. Chapter 9 I just finished up with the colonel, who was speaking with numerous guests at the long mahogany main desk across from the breakfast nook. I sat at one of the corner tables. A busload of tourists waited in line at the breakfast smorgasbord. Black and white vintage photographs in antique wood frames showed scenes from the turn of the 20th century Oceanico Beach and photographs of the hotel along the yellow wall. Marty, never one to turn down a huge meal, brought a plastic tray full of eggs and bacon, cereal and OJ to the table. So, you had a meeting with the Colonel this morning, said Marty, snapping his chops on a crisp bacon slice as he set down the tray. Forty-five minutes I was with the Colonel, I said, placing my coffee cup on the table. We have the last phase of the electronic locks for the hotel. It's a lot of food there, Marty. What, am I not supposed to eat? It's 10.30, didn't you have breakfast? Sure, you're the only guy I know who can eat like a racehorse and not put on a pound. Marty had two slices of bacon between his fingers. Listen to me, Sam. 
Bender is all over this. How am I supposed to tell him that my intel from Morgan City was you? Don't point your bacon at me, Marty, I told him. I don't want to screw up his excellence program. Chapter 9 I just finished up with the colonel, who was speaking with numerous guests at the long mahogany main desk across from the breakfast nook. I sat at one of the corner tables. A busload of tourists waited in line at the breakfast smorgasbord. Black and white vintage photographs and antique wood frames showed scenes from the turn of the 20th century Oceanico Beach and photographs of the hotel along the yellow wall. Marty, never one to turn down a huge meal, brought a plastic tray full of eggs and bacon, cereal and OJ to the table. So, you had a meeting with the Colonel this morning, said Marty, snapping his chops on a crisp bacon slice as he set down the tray. Forty-five minutes I was with the Colonel, I said, placing my coffee cup on the table. We have the last phase of the electronic locks for the hotel. It's a lot of food there, Marty. What, am I not supposed to eat? It's 10.30, didn't you have breakfast? Sure, you're the only guy I know who can eat like a racehorse and not put on a pound. Marty had two slices of bacon between his fingers. But listen to me, Sam, Bender is all over this. How am I supposed to tell him that my intel from Morgan City was you? Don't point your bacon at me, Marty, I told him. I don't want to screw up his excellence program. Plus, you sent me up there. Right. Marty chewed the bacon and sipped his coffee. He spoke as if his mouth was a meat grinder with his words mangled with the bacon chunk. What do you want us to do, Sam? Highway Patrol went into the warehouse building. It's empty and nobody's talking. I told you the trucks were backed up to the dock once I was caught in there. I slid Kyle's computer readout of the building owner to Marty. Retroactive Components Trust in San Jose. It's a sham. So what? asked Marty. I had two vehicles after me at 100 miles an hour to the Mojave. Marty set down his orange juice. Again, Sam, what should we do? You don't have their tag number. They probably have yours. What about Seahorse Plumbing? Phony. Doesn't exist. I checked it. I'd be willing to bet Al Compton was unloading whatever was coming out of that warehouse. Speculation. Look, Sam, I have gang members in my cell and a dead guy from their little gathering on the beach last night. Bender wants me on that. Well, this is bigger. I don't see it. Compton was a small-time operator who pissed somebody off. I'm not so sure about that, I said. But I do know Al Compton was a threat to the operation. Marty shook his head. What about this phony Megan Stoller? We can't find anything on her. Meaningless prints in that loft apartment. Who is Stoller? I'm working on it, I told him. Sure. And other leads I have. Like what? Asked Marty. Let me get them first, Marty. I'll call you from, from wherever I'm going. And where is that? Catalina. Catalina? Why Catalina? What? Possibility of shipments in the hills over there. I think those shipments were brought to that warehouse in Morgan City, then out to another location, have them lost in the system without a freight. Oh, really? You don't even have a client. Maybe I do. Whoa, Stoller. She hired me, whoever she is. Sam, well, I trust your judgment. You have quite an imagination. Marty looked out the window as my dusty blue vet moved down the drive. Marty half stood and leaned out the window. Isn't that your car, Sam? Muck's bringing it to Cruz's garage. They're going to check the alignment, whatever else might have happened last night. You're lucky they didn't kill you. 
Then he'll get a detail. Wait a minute, I thought you weren't buying my theory. Don't start your polemics with me, Sam. Oh, was that the cop word of the day, Marty? Marty grinned, but he was too busy shoveling in hash browns. Just let me know what you find out on Catalina. Sure. I bet I'll be hearing from Boom Boom if I help his investigative excellence. Oh, you can count on it. Woody and I arrived at the Catalina Terminal in Long Beach. There was a slight delay because of the wind, but we got the go-ahead about a half an hour later. Woody had already purchased tickets online, and we finally boarded the fast boat to the island. We were aft, in the open-air blue seats, above the two lower decks as the boat moved away in the wind from the docks. The wake formed a pathway back to the concrete barriers and the set of formed streamlined buildings with tainted linear window spans in the foreground all the way to the higher Long Beach buildings. No, we're aboard ship, I told Shirley as I pulled my Aussie hat tighter. High speed catamaran, said Woody in his orange windbreaker. 35 knots. We're damn lucky they didn't shut this baby down today. I heard him, said Shirley. The wind subsided a bit, Sam. So Bender hasn't called about my escapades in Morgan City. No, sir. Should I tell him where you guys are going? Sure. I'm an open book, Shirley, I said, and Woody rolled his eyes. Ciao. We slowly passed the gargantuan Queen Mary like a suboceanic behemoth now residing in the harbor in the distant haze. I don't mind going to Catalina, Sam. That plant can grow on the mainland, or it could have been planted in somebody's garden. Not the mainland, just Catalina and the Channel Islands, Woody, I said. And what are the odds that damn Barry was brought back to the skiff? Why? I watched the numerous oil tankers in the bay as the boat's massive jets spewed a powerful surge back into the ocean with the city buildings further away. Then I put my arm on Woody's shoulder. Woody, my boy, it's assumed, and I think by both of us, that whatever was unloaded to him was illegal, immoral, or illegitimate, or all three. The hills overlooking Avalon would be a great place off the trail to stash the contraband. Well, it's a stretch. Have I ever been wrong? Woody did a double take. <laughs> Where do I begin? I laughed, having gotten under his skin. Look, when we're done with our little hike, we'll have dinner. I'll buy you something at the Harbor Glove. I like shrimp. Good, you can have all the margaritas you want. You really think someone left such a valuable stash out in the open? Out in the open, yes, but off trail. We're not going to find anything here. If you have backpacks, you pick up the contraband easy, because you know where it is place where nobody goes, off the trail. But Sam, the berry getting caught in somebody's sneaker or coat makes no sense. True, I think somebody picked it, put it in their pocket, and then pitched it at the marina. A lot of ifs. You bring something up the coast on a boat, stash it in the hills. People pick it up, then it's shipped from the warehouse with plumbing supplies to Rio Martos, and then to Chandler. I looked over the blue water as I talked to Woody. Maybe. Something was going on, or is going on, in Chandler. Why not just bring it to wherever? Shipping with plumbing supplies makes it totally disappear. S. Crud. Still at it, Queen Bee. We'll have info for you tomorrow. M. McGonagall. Who is this? LOL. S. Crud. Bugs Bunny. M. McGonagall. What's up, Doc? I leaned back and laughed as Woody half glanced over his shoulder in the wind. S. Crud, nothing right now. M. McGonagall, I await your return, Prince Charboiled.
asked Crud. I will return. I then dozed off, smiling in the sunshine, still wasted by my Morgan City adventure, but thinking of Queenie. My eyes were clamped shut for the longest time. I felt Woody shake my arm. I shook my head and opened my eyes to the Angle Mountains rising out of the sea. I remained groggy as the rounded Avalon Casino came into view with the brush green mountains behind the city. You know, Al Jolson left his love in Avalon, said Woody. What? I asked. The song. I have the 78. I'll play it for you. Is that your way of getting revenge for bringing you on this trip, Woody? I yawned and stared at the homes terracing the tawny hillside. I like that song. I will save it for a rainy day. I made it simple. We took one of the electric carts out to the botanical garden. I quickly cornered one of the guides, a young woman with the darkest eyebrows I had ever seen. I tried not to look at her brows as I grilled her about the Catalina Manzanita. It's pretty much native to this island, I said as Woody panned the garden. No, sir. To California, it grows wild only in the Channel Islands, specifically Catalina and the Santa Cruz Islands. That verified what Swenson told me. Can you use it in gardens on the mainland? You can, yes, but its well-defined trunk does best to the hefty salty air and the aforementioned island bluffs. But it wouldn't grow wild, say, along the coast from Santa Monica to San Clemente. Probably positioned in the garden it might, she pointed to the hills overlooking Avalon. You might check on one of the trails. Thank you very much, I said as I followed Woody, now in his Hawaiian shirt, back to the gold cart. Hey, did you see those eyebrows? But did you hear what she said? So you think a boat from down south dropped off the stuff on a trail? Not necessarily here. The important part is Morgan City's connection to the drop point. Why do I think you just wanted to be out of town today in case they followed you from Morgan City? I faced my friend of ten years and counting. Very good, Woody. Then we checked the mountain slopes. I'm not climbing a mountain, Sam. You know how I feel about heights. I already checked. We can drive the cart. Then we come back to eat. I'll call Marty and see if they have any more information on that warehouse. And I'll check with Cookie and Muck to make sure nobody's been snooping around the loft. Ah, that's why you sent the vet for work. I have to anyways. I said as I climbed in the gold cart and Woody got behind the wheel. I pointed ahead. To the top, driver. Heights didn't bother me. Woody, however, had problems on a ladder painting the outside of his shop. And now he's driving this golf cart on a narrow dirt road 1,300 feet above Avalon in the harbor. I could see Woody was sweating, but maybe it was just from the heat. To my right was a respectable drop over the dirt into a mass of shrubs and wiry bushes. We reached a more gradual ascent toward the top of the small mountain. I knew there was a cart some distance behind us. I didn't think somebody would be after us, but I removed my gun anyways. What the hell? shouted Woody as the cart sped closer. Woody, just haul ass out of here, will you? How do they follow us? This is impossible. The impossible is always possible, Woody, I said, looking over my shoulder. The road began to straighten. Pull over, Woody. We're going to take them head on. Loop around and face them. I held Beatrice firm as we waited for the cart. To my left, hundreds of feet below, was the harbor and the acrocolored boathouse, as well as the casino behind. When the blue top cart rounded the curb, I pointed my gun forward just under the front panel. Two women, a blonde and a redhead, dressed in bright bikini tops, rolled forward. I slid the gun onto the seat, shrugged my shoulders at Woody, and we both began laughing. You think we're safe, Woody? <laughs> it depends. 
The red-headed driver swung her car toward us. Refining my assessment, I realized they wore skimpy bikinis. The blonde smiled at me. You guys need some help? I'm not sure. You lost? asked the redhead. Yeah, yeah, we're lost, shouted Woody. No, we're not, I said as I leaned toward her. We thought somebody was coming up after us. Hey, we'll be at the Harbor Glow, yelled Woody. We both like Caribbean rum punch, said the redhead, cupping her hand. You got it, said Woody. See you there in an hour. They rolled forward and the blonde waved at me again. I turned to Woody. What the hell do you think you're doing, Woody? What? They were gorgeous. I don't argue that. They were conning you. They were serious. You saw them. Oh, yeah, the Caribbean rum punch. I'm not getting suckered. What really bothered me, and I was surprised, was my semi-serious relationship with Queenie. It hadn't evolved, yet maybe I really did like her. I ain't missing this one. I know what you're thinking, Woody. Send me off on the boat so you can go into the harbor glow. Well, I don't care. Go ahead. I tell you, they won't even show up. Up the slope, I spotted huge shrubs with the infamous berry, all surrounded by white bristles and light green blades. The manzanita. What? I ran up the slope, crawling on my knees as I broke a bristle with several berries. The bristles could have easily latched on to clothing and the berry fall off later. I held it up to Woody in the cart below. Eureka! Damn, Compton was here, on this island. This is Sam. Sammy, it's bad. What's up, bad? You find anything? The sun lit up the dirt road as Woody nudged slowly down the mountain. Compton worked part-time. He came in uh, twice a week. He did unload plumbing supplies, according to my contact, Darren. But Darren was uncomfortable about talking about it. I think somebody slipped Darren some money. What was the destination of what Al Compton unloaded? I asked. I can't get to the bill of ladings. I pinched the bridge of my nose. Check the shipments to Chandler if you can. Why Chandler? That's the connection I found, I said. Woody looked pensive and was probably still mulling over the offer from the girls. I'm leaving Richmond tonight, Sam, but I'll pass the word around about Chandler to Darren. Don't get your hopes up. I never do. Thanks, Bad. I'll take care of you. You better, he said, laughing his deep laugh. Or I'll bust your ass. I'll make a note of it. Woody alternated glances between me and the dirt road. Something was making him forget his fear of heights. The hell are you looking at, Woody? You going home on the boat? As soon as I talk to Muck and see if anyone's been looking around for me at the hotel. And by the way, Al Compton worked on loading plumbing supplies part-time for Richmond Express. Why not just bring it to Chandler? They want it legit once it left Morgan City. Then it looks like regular freight. But I can sure as hell tell you this, it wasn't just plumbing supplies. I warned Woody one more time not to make a fool out of himself. But he went to the Harbor Glow anyway. Muck told me my car was out of alignment. Big surprise. And a slight split in the fiberglass at the front end. I could get that fixed later. He and Shorty checked the hotel surveillance for anyone who looked like the bushy-haired man or the stockier guy as well as Naki. I added the pit bull Roy to the list. You guys be careful, said Muck. I didn't tell him about Woody's latest caper with the Caribbean rum punch girls. I told Muck I'd be back in a couple of hours, and the boat to Long Beach was on time. Then I headed down to the lounge and loaded up on burgers and fries. I sat by the window. Now I knew about the berries in my knapsack. Somebody picking up the contraband, maybe even in a backpack, like mine, might have zipped up the stem and sliced off the berry. 
could have been a number of things. Wild theory, but it made sense to me now. They may have unzipped the bag and the berry fell out. In any event, that berry shouldn't have been on the marina walk. S. Crud. Queen of Queens, I is fine. Meet me for breakfast at the boardwalk. M. McGonagall. Crud of cruds, LOL. Look forward to it. What time? S. Crud. 8 a.m. sharp. M. McGonagall. Chow. S. Crud, LOL. When I looked up, Woody stood with a plastic tray of American chopped suey and five bulky rolls. His beverage was coffee. I fought my rising smile. Well, I'm glad you could join me on the return flight, Woody. Woody's dark eyes bounced from side to side. You talk to Muck? Nobody's snooping around the hotel. Hey, Woody, why did they get Al Compton from one of the islands to our neck of the woods? I bet it was from Catalina. Right, because it's closest to Oceano Beach. I said, but why go to the marina at all at Oceanico Beach? Yeah, he dug into the chop suey as we moved out of port. What the hell was Compton doing on Catalina? Getting killed. Here's the catch, my Caribbean rum punch pal. The girls were in the harbor glow, Sam. You're kidding. With two jokers they picked up somewhere, said Woody. They were sloshed and they left. Here's the conundrum, Woodrow. I pointed at my friend. I think I was wrong. If those jokers hadn't shown up at the Harbor Glow, we'd all be in one big slosh party. Really? Really. You want a burger? I'm fine. Woody raised his index finger. If you're going to dump a body, why would you dump it on the skiff where you don't have a boat? Panic? And because Oceanico Beach Patrol saw a boat come in after midnight, I think whoever was on that boat dumped the body on the deck and went back to sea. Nobody saw Al Compton's body until early morning. I finished the second burger and added a few fries. Either they knew about the marina, either they knew about the marina or located it online when they left Catalina. Woody nodded. Maybe, Sam. They were bringing the body somewhere else. That's possible. They? Who is they? The guys in Rio Martos? Or maybe Morgan City? Woody spoke as he gnawed on the bulky roll. Or Chandler? I nodded. Then I picked up the phone and called Kyle. Sam. Kyle, I need the owners of the new construction of homes, the office building, and the shopping center in Chandler. It's not online. I already checked. Why not? I don't know. We'd be at the Chandler City Hall. Hard copies. Don't you find that odd, Kyle? Yeah. I'm trying to locate somebody named Repetta from Morgan City. I'll stay at it. Thanks, Kyle. What happened? Nothing on Repetter. I feel like we're stuck in the mud. Kyle can't find any ownership online about the construction in Chandler. We have to get hard copies of those projects. Risky, Sam. Very risky. Chapter 10. After 10 p.m., I sat on one of the 19th century maroon Victorian sofas with mahogany armrests and soft fabric. There were at least a dozen of these sofas along the Parisio Oceanico's wide corridor. Only a few stragglers entered and exited the front portico at this hour. The colonel had long since retired with Mrs. Colonel to their suite on the third floor. I studied Al Compton's dark eyes in the mugshot and now sensed he might have been killed off or on Santa Catalina Island, nor would they have come to the marina if the murder was planned. Marty had not been cooperating about getting Catalina passenger manifests. When I called him, he admitted it was Bender who had nixed the manifest request. Bender said it was a waste of time, especially when he heard I was involved. Marty, I could see the investigative excellence means not rocking the boat. 
I said, realizing the pun. Funny, Sam, funny. What you have is a theory. One of those theories led to the plumbing supply warehouse in Morgan City. Where's the stock you claim was inside? I don't claim. I know it. I was there. And you haven't even tracked down who owns the damn place. Sam, just dropped the whole thing. Stolas disappeared and the theory about Compton and Catalina is flimsy. I sprang from the sofa and began walking down the carpeted corridor. So, you think the two clowns chasing me through the high desert is just coincidence, Marty? After a short silence, Marty buckled. When do you think Compton would have been on that island and why? Obviously right before he was murdered and I don't know why. I'll personally check the passenger list of Catalina. And there's new construction everywhere in Chandler. We'll worry about the Chandler connection later. Betty is waving me off the phone. I don't want to ruin your love life, Marty. Sam, why don't you take a flying beep for the email startled me. Carl had just emailed an attachment. Bye, Marty. Sam, the retroactive components is owned by a man 87 years old, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Name Morris Tripp. 20 years ago, the building housed electronic parts, registered in San Jose. The building is not rented, and the electric and water are paid by the adjacent bar, Constantine's. I called the associates in Canada. Tripp is in assisted living and cannot speak. His business holdings are nil. The warehouse is basically abandoned. I did check the bar owned by a Kevin Suchi for the last four years. I pinched the bridge of my nose. The email had made a bad situation worse. Somebody had moved into an abandoned warehouse. With my eyes still closed, I plotted my day tomorrow. I would have breakfast with Queenie and then head east to Riverside. I would check the county records for Inland Acres and the shopping center. Kyle, good work. Tomorrow morning I'm checking the county records for current projects in Chandler. I'll take care of you. Ciao, Sam. Back in the dim light of the central lobby, the colonel in a sports shirt and dockers walked toward me. I sat up straight. The colonel had a military presence, so I stood. Colonel, what brings you out of your suite tonight? I saw you on my monitor, crud. So you wanted a late-night chat, I asked, smiling. No, sir. Call came into the main switchboard this morning while you were gallivanting about. For me? I assume so. The individual who called asked directly if you had been in Morgan City on Tuesday. Joni at the switchboard said she didn't know anything about it, which was the truth. Now, I don't know what the hell you were doing up there. I appreciate the info, Colonel. You didn't have to come all the way out here. Oh, no, crud, I did. Why? I have capacities in this hotel that would boggle your mind. I raised my brows. That call came from the FBI. What the hell? Why are they calling you? Were you in Morgan City? You know, Colonel, what I do on my own is my own damn business. Not if it affects this hotel. It doesn't. I have the phone call on tape. La-dee-da, I said as I turned, but I wasn't thinking about the Colonel. My first reaction was someone at the FBI was on the take from Compton's buddies, perhaps to keep the warehouse going. Consider yourself on report, mister. Yes, Colonel, I said, upset that he had surveilled me on camera and was recording my calls. You have an annoying attitude. I relayed in my head what I had just said, la-di-da. Then it occurred to me that some of those plumbing supplies might have been taken away in a white cube truck. I wasn't sure how they suspected me being in Morgan City. That didn't matter. I needed to house my carcass somewhere else other than my loft at Parisio Osiconico. 
and I would need to borrow Muck's Ram pickup and hide the vet in the golf cart garage under the hotel. I slipped into the vet, but I decided to leave the grounds for the marina. Crazy theory was bouncing around my head as I drove down to the skiffs where Al Compton's body had been found. I had assumed Al Compton worked for the owners of the operation because he unloaded trucks. Maybe Compton was murdered because he was higher up in this scheme than I thought. Someone may have lured him to Catalina. Even if Compton had been forced onto a mountain trail, somebody may have inadvertently sliced the Catalina Manzanita and transported it back to the mainland. More important, where was the Seahorse plumbing shipped? Was it Chandler? And what was that unread Chandler newspaper doing in Al Compton's house in Morgan City? I sat on the front fender of the vet as the investigation swirled around my head. Who was a part of that prison population during Al Compton's tenure behind bars? Many a scheme was planned in the courtyard of a maximum security prison. I shook my head. I guess I was glad the colonel had alerted me to the Morgan City call. I took out my cell and called Dan Curis's number. Dan and I were at Long Beach together playing varsity football and baseball. He went right into the FBI after law school. We had seen each other as friends and had gone to Dodgers games over the years and even had a jaunt in Santa Barbara during the Super Bowl. Dan's number at the FBI office in Pasadena was listed above his cell number. I decided to leave a message on his cell. He lived in Agora along the Ventura Freeway. This is Dan, you've reached my private phone. Leave me a confidential message. Crud, call me. I think I've found some hanky-panky. I slipped the phone in my shorts pocket and exhaled. I would not be targeted if Dan could find out why the FBI called the colonel. Plus, he had the means to do the proper legal work. Yet I had no owners of the seahorse or whatever was going on in Chandler. I got back in the vent and spun around the beach. I couldn't see Catalina in the darkness, just the tankers blinking red and green and numerous buoy lights. What about Al Compton? Who the hell was he? Chapter 11 I told Queenie I was on Catalina pertaining to the Al Compton case. I was looking forward to seeing her again. Queenie checked her phone when I walked into the breakfast aromas and a smell of strong, rich coffee. She gave me a big smile and set down her phone. I debated how much to tell her right now. She wore a cute white sundress with yellow flowers and she hugged me when I reached the window table. We kissed briefly. Queenie, 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 I said as I realized I had a dumbass grin on my face. Sure, I was glad to see her, but more than that, I was astounded at how much I was liking her. I had known her for five years, but now something had clicked. You got a little color on your cheek, Sammy. I stared at her for a short time and then pursed my lips. I decided to tell you the whole deal on Al Compton. She opened her green eyes. Whoa, should I get my notebook? I handed her the yellow pad in my hand. I come prepared. I slid the pens across the table. I'm impressed, she said, putting her hand on mine. So, there's more to this than just Al Compton's murder. This thing gets more complicated by the day. What I'm going to tell you, Queen of Queens, I said, gesturing with my hands as if I were karate chopping, has to be held back until I solve this thing. Why are you doing this, Sam? First, it was because Megan Stoller, or whoever she is, hired me. Then when Lucy was murdered, I went after them. Now I realize how big this thing is. But it's because of Lucy. Really. And you trust me to keep it under wraps? Yeah. I do believe that something funny is happening here, Sammy. I leaned closer and kissed her as the waitress arrived. Watch out, I'm a bad boy, Queenie. 
you know, like in that Tom Petty song. I can come back, said the waitress. I looked up with a doofus look that matched Queenie's dumb expression. I'll have coffee, bacon, and eggs, toast, and OJ. Eggs over light, coffee with sweetener and milk. Will do, said the waitress as she spun around. I'll give you a list of all my contacts on this, Queenie. Also, I'm going to begin from the time Woody called me about Al Compton. Seems like years ago. Queenie held her pen. I'm ready. For me or the case? Both, bad boy. Let's go, she answered with a big smile. The waitress set down the coffee. Thank you. After we finish here, do you have time to drive over to Chandler? What's going on over there? She asked. You'll see, I said, stirring the coffee. Half an hour later, we headed east through the hills and the National Forest in Muck's white pickup, ending up around Lake Elsinore. Still on the back roads, we finally reached Chandler, triangulated to the cities of San Diego and Los Angeles. I covered skydiving events out here for the station, said Queenie. Wide open skies. I pulled over into a small plaza and spent the better part of the next half hour informing Queenie, adding to what I had learned. Even Queenie, who had been on the air for several years and had been a street reporter in the heart of L.A. for four years, was visibly shocked. She wrote furiously and kept shaking her head. So we have to look at the county records about projects in Chandler, but we don't know if this has anything to do with the newspaper you saw at Al Compton's house in Morgan City, said Queenie. And you're guessing, Sam, the warehouse was shipping plumbing supplies to Chandler via the trucking company in Rio Martos. I nodded. If I'm right, that shipment from Morgan City has nothing to do with plumbing as much as it does to do with something illegal. Al Compton unloaded it personally, and I don't think he just had a Chandler newspaper at his house for the hell of it. I agree, said Queenie. Certainly worth checking projects in Chandler that would require plumbing supplies. The contraband, whatever it is, was retrieved from Catalina or the Channel Islands. How'd it get there? she asked boat, plane. They bring it into the warehouse in Morgan City and then have it picked up by Richmond Express to their terminal. Then it goes out possibly to Chandler. And distributed, said Queenie. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Exactly. Someone is making big dineros. Maybe Rapetta. They cut the chain of evidence from the drop and put it on a legitimate carrier. So it appears at the distribution point as a legitimate shipment. Sam, she said, holding my wrist. Does Marty understand the magnitude of this? Maybe, but he's too busy implementing Bender's investigative excellence program. What I want to know is who owns the shopping center, the office building, and the Inland Acres project. Hundreds of houses. But then what, Sam? Someone brings the original shipments to the end user at their convenience. Lots of tenuous stuff here, said Queenie. I know, but why did they come after me outside of Morgan City? Because you were on to something in the warehouse. And the fact that they were moving stock when you drove back tells me definitely something illegal was taking place. I get it. I only say it could go in any direction. Then, my dear, we eliminate things one by one, I said. And you don't have to get involved in this. I know that. Two things. This is one hell of a story, albeit dangerous. And you, what about me? She produced a wide smile and held my hand. I think you know the answer to that, Mr. Crud. I maneuvered Muck's pickup into the side parking garage to the multi-story blue glass administrative building. We continued a conversation that began somewhere on the back road. The center of the discussion was the Dodges, 
not the L.A., but the Dodgers when they were in Brooklyn. They were the trolley Dodgers, Queenie. She looked at him and pressed her lips as the wind furrowed her short blonde hair. Do you know that for a fact, Sam, or are we in Abner Doubleday territory? Its fans used to adeptly avoid the trolley cars, I said, putting my hand on her back as I guided her up past a clump of palm trees to the front entrance. I'm still not sold. They played in South Brooklyn in two stadiums, named Washington Park and Easton Park. That was before it was Ebbets Field. Queenie put her hand on her hip as we walked into the air conditioning. I know of Ebbets Field. We'll go to Chavez for a game and I'll buy you a book about the trolley dodges. She shook her head. Make it interleague so I can see the angels. Done. Less than an hour later, we were seated at a lengthy lightwood table with several freshly copied documents detailing the construction in Chandler during the past year. I discounted the new home construction and remodeling. The Langston Morrison Company out of Hawthorne began clearing the land west of the little town of Chandler. There's plumbing here, Sam, but not on a consistent basis like that massive inland acres. Eventually 4,000 units. Yikes. Who owns it? asked Queenie, looking cute in her sundress, and I smiled. What's so funny? Just an observation. She gave me a sneaky grin. Who the hell is Pung LTD? I typed it into my phone search. Part of the Walter Seong companies. It sounds Korean. Probably because it is. South Korea. No connection to Morgan City, she said as she looked over my shoulder at the linear white building off the Santa Ana Freeway. Walter Seong, an Asian with nerdy black rim glasses, stood with his arms across his chest. I need to call Danny. The FBI agent? Yes, ma'am. I placed a call and the line rang. Sam, I was going to call you back. What's your hanky-panky? Personal or professional? We need to go bar hopping for the personal, said Danny. Guy named Al Compton, presently deceased, spent time at Escobedo, nine years for armed robbery and a couple years for transportation of stolen goods. With what I'm investigating now, Danny, I think he was in with people that got him into transporting contraband of some kind. I'm working on it. I can get that information for you, Sam, but I want to sit down with you about this. Who killed Compton? Like I know that, Danny? Listen, I'll check Compton's record and see who his buddies were on both his stays at Escobedo. Doing this on the QT. Why? I asked. I can't tell you. Not a big deal. I'll get you answers real quick and that'll be the end of it. I appreciate that. So formal. Listen, Crud, I have some time off this fall. You still owe me a poker game. Come on, Danny. I don't want to beat you again. We'll see. Ciao. I looked up at Queenie. She nodded her head. Danny will let me know if there was anyone of consequence at Escobedo with Al Compton. Compton doesn't sound like a high roller, said Queenie, but the right person could manipulate him to get the ball rolling. I'd put him in a meeting on a boat or a drop at Catalina at some time. What about Compton unloading what came in from Morgan City? Those guys were all over him at the Munson. Do you think they were running the operation? I shook my shoulders. Whoever they were, Perez said they were livid at Al Compton. And my question is for what? Indeed. I leaned back in the chair and cupped my hands behind my head. Richmond Express delivered the contraband of plumbing supplies somewhere. Seahorse out of Morgan City. I'd like to see the bills of lading. I'm sure they're all listed as some other locations, Sam. The whole thing will have been taken from illegal to a legit delivery. Exactly right, I stood. Let's hit the shopping center and then Inland Acres. Mr. Crud, you are getting deeper into this. 
And now, Queen Bee, you are right there with me. Thanks a lot. Again, I place my hand on her back, but it'll pay off if we don't get killed. I propped the truck by a slim, streamlined trailer with a high galvanized fence. The entire plaza was under construction and painters worked feverishly on ladders leaning up to the fascia trim. Each unit had a different pastel color. A rough asphalt covered the parking lot and trees had been planted in the medians. Queenie noticed once we were inside, even though this was a massive shopping center, each unit required some of its own plumbing. We walked the whole length of the project, occasionally looking for the units of any evidence of Seahorse plumbing supplies. I squinted in the sunshine outside one of the units as Queenie spoke up behind me. Sam, that Chandler newspaper in Compton's house could mean something totally different. I know, I know. This could be a waste of time. Let's try Inland Acres, see if they have centralized buying. We began walking back toward the truck outside the fence. If they had shipments like you say, they'd go to a receiving area, said Queenie. She locked arms as we stepped onto the uneven ground back toward the front entrance, and then to the unit where it's needed. I looked back at the shopping center's trailer. That's it. That's what? asked Queenie as I opened up the pickup store and hoisted her by her butt onto the seat. What is that, some kind of slick move to grab my ass? If I was slick, you wouldn't be asking that question. She grinned and I started the truck. The fake Megan Stoller called a Riverside number from the hotel to an empty trailer here in Chandler. A call forwarding with the Empire Phone Company routed the call to that payphone at Constantine's. Aha! But it means nothing, Queenie, unless we find out who got that call. Marty is aware of this. Well, Marty doesn't see the larger picture. True, but it's not his fault. Bender has Marty way overworked with this excellent bullshit. And where is that trailer, oh great one? Could be anywhere. There are Riverside numbers in Chandler. The trailer would be on site or unfortunately somewhere within a 25 mile radius. Not very encouraging, said Queenie as she pointed to a row of red and blue flags and a huge blue sign with the letters there's the sign, Inland Acres, a community for one and all. Pung, LTD, five miles. Project consisting of an outer triangular road was dissected in the middle with hundreds of homes and at least 20 cul-de-sacs. The dirt road in the distance rose up to a hill high above the project. Two buildings, maybe maintenance, were on either side of the summit. To our immediate left, down a paved road, was a clubhouse, pool, and tennis courts. Let's snoop around here and then we'll drive to Riverside and have dinner at the Sierra Inn, I said. I love the Sierra Inn, she exclaimed. You'd better like it with me, I said, not quite sure who had brought her there in the past, nor did Queenie volunteer the information. I marveled at each home's trim grass sloping up from the concrete curb. Multicolored flags furrowed in the wind toward a central guard shack with an entrance road on one side and an exit on the far side. I drove around a circular drive toward the massive frame stucco clubhouse with American and California flags out front. Queenie and I started up the main walk. Several easels had been knocked over by the wind. A tall man in a blue blazer and a striped tie opened the brass doors. Inside was a massive wall map with roads and cul-de-sacs. Around the expansive showroom, dozens of people wandered between photographs of the units. The women were dressed in high-class business suits and the men in blue blazers. 
They pitched the units professionally and with great enthusiasm. As I watched the fashionably dressed woman, I immediately thought of Megan Stoller. I turned as Queenie stepped forward. Megan Stoller, she said in a whisper. I smiled. Hello, my name is Vicky, said a brunette with fluffed up curly hair and a perpetual Megan Stoller smile. Actually, we're here looking for Megan. Oh, no, Megan here, but I can help you. Are you two thinking of a new place? Why, yes, said Queenie. Maybe a bedroom with an office and a deck. Well, that sounds like our Yacinto unit, which can vary in size, I might add. Excellent, said Queenie as she looked at me. Hun? Well, that sounds like a plan. I tried not to laugh at her theatrics. Excellent, said Vicky. Let me get a cart and I'd be glad to drive you to a Yacinto unit. Be right back. As she walked toward the office, her heels tapping over the tiles, I faced Queenie. Looking for a unit, eh, Queenie? We walked along the wall photos near the map. She took my arm. Oh, honey, I'm so excited. Not in public, honey, I said as we both began laughing. Watch it, Queenie. We'll be spending the night in the Yacinto unit. Promises, promises. I thought now is as good a time as any to kiss her, and I did. I mean, I really kissed her. Her eyes beamed when I opened my eyes. Over her shoulder, I saw a black and white photo enlarged on the wall. An older couple shook hands with one of the salesmen, but in the background, albeit fuzzy, a man with bushy black hair and a light suit coat walked across the room. My eyes opened wide. Wow, what's wrong, Sam? That man. She looked over her shoulder and then faced the mural. That's one of the sketches on the phone from the hotel in Rio Martos. I was already scrolling through the photos. When I found the artist's sketch, I held the phone up. Queenie leaned over. Pretty damn close. Well, who the hell is he? I asked loudly, and I walked briskly to the guy who was in the first door. Excuse me. Yes, sir. I noticed a black and white mural over there on the wall. Yes. I think I just saw somebody I know in that mural. Can you believe it? We crossed the tiles, and I pointed to the thin, bushy-haired man in the sport coat. I believe that's my buddy, Byron. Byron, asked Queenie, picking up on what I said. The salesman squinted at the mural, and from behind, Queenie snapped the mural image. The man with bushy hair, I said. I have no idea who that man is, said the salesman. I stepped closer and produced a dumb grin and alternated glances between Queenie and the salesman. No, that's Byron. I'll have to call him up. Oh, you do that, sir. You're being helped, correct? Yes, yes answered Queenie. Vicky is bringing us to a Yacinto unit. Good, good. You'll like that unit. In fact, when this project is done, businesses and residential units will descend around inland acres, upping the value of what you purchase. They're already building a shopping center. Yes, we saw it, I said. Huge. Just the beginning for Chandler. Ten years, you won't recognize this place. Chapter 12 My cell rang just before 8. I'd spent the last 15 minutes trying to wake up. The Oceanico Beach Police Station was calling. Maybe Marty would finally answer his texts and calls from yesterday. Sam Crud. Nice of you to finally pick up, Crud, said Bender. What do you want, Bender? What do I want? 
what do you want? You've been sticking your nose into police business up in Rio Martos, getting into barroom brawls and questioning individuals who are part of an official investigation. Thank God Bender knew nothing about my wreaking havoc in Morgan City or trying to break into the building at Inland Acres. Is that all? No, it's not all, smart boy. I want your ass in my office at 9 a.m. Is that clear? Or I'll send a squad car out to your love pad. I shook my head as I grew increasingly angry. I pushed the end button, but Shirley called right away. Good morning, Sam. How did you make out of Chandler? I'll go over that later. Call Harry. I want my lawyer with me when I get down to Bender's office at 9 a.m. It could get messy. Sure. I'll get on it right away. Talk to you later. Ciao. I handed my Aunt Cookie money to get Muck's truck washed. Cookie stood in her office door in the basement. Muck is buying maintenance supplies and Cerritos. Now I'm heading to Bender's office. Uh-oh, said Cookie as she lit a cigarette. That man is a total horse's ass. I smiled. Harry Cranston is meeting me downtown. Harry confuses Bender. Catch you later, Cookie. Bye, Sam. I parked the bat shiny and running smoothly in the secondary parking lot behind the police station garage. Ten minutes later, I climbed up the stairs and waited for Harry in the open area surrounded by the police officers. I turned to the dispatch alcove. How are you, Linda? Linda, with a mass of styled brown hair, turned at the switchboard. Sambuca! My thoughts flew back to a wild Christmas party where Linda had downed drink after drink of Sambuca, laced with Cafe Coretto. I had a few drinks, but nothing like Linda, who I had to carry out to the car and then drove back to her condo. Then I split. I understand Bender wants me in his office. He's all pissed off. You were up in Rio Martos. You have sensitive ears. Sensitive what? She asked, flashing her painted red nails. You heard me. Sambuca, Sambuca. Merry Christmas. She gave me a smile, short of sexy, but sulky enough to garner my attention. I looked toward the fan spinning above and shook my head. Bender's office was the third on the right. The frosted glass panel in the door designated the room as the lieutenant's office. Lieutenant Don Bender pushed open the door without knocking. The fat-faced Bender had his shoes propped up on the desk as he talked on the phone. He met me with fierce, dark eyes. His face tightened as he struggled to get his shoes on the floor. Hold on, Judge, he said as he threw the receiver on the desk. You come to my office, cried you damn well better knock. Like you did in my office? You said nine o'clock. I didn't want to be late. You get the hell out of here and don't come in here until I call you. Yes, sir. Asshole. No, Judge. No, no. Someone burst in my office. I shut the door and hid my smile. I took a seat on the bench across from the door. I glanced at my watch. Harry was always late and today was no exception. Ten minutes later, Benda's door opened and he returned to his desk chair. Come on in, crud. I haven't got all day. I looked toward the front lobby and walked in. Shut the door. I kicked it with my heel and the glass vibrated as the door slammed. What is it you want, Bender? I want to know what you were up to in Rio Marta and when you were last up there. I went up to snoop around following Al Compton's tracks for my client. Your defunct client? We'll see. What do you mean by that? 
asked Bender as he stood. We'll see. He sat down and folded his hands. And what did you find out in Rio, Martos? Not much. I was attacked in Finnegan's bar up there. I looked over my shoulder. I need my lawyer here. You went to the Hotel Munson. No comment. And you spoke with Perez, the manager. No comment. The door swung open. The ball, Harry, hair askew on the sides, his suspenders seeming to hold up his large gut, stood disheveled in the open doorway. I didn't know whether his eyebrows were bushier than his mustache. I'm about to lock you up, cried. Oh, why don't you go down and lock yourself up, Don? said Harry in his booming voice. He had the habit of clearing his throat continuously. Too many cigars. Oh, don't start your bullshit, Harry, said Bender, pointing. You will submit your questions in writing, said Harry, setting down his wrinkled briefcase that looked more like a suitcase. And we will provide the answers. It's a pretty simple scenario. What crud did up in Rio Martos? Harry stuck a toothpick between his teeth. Go bully somebody else, Don. See here, said Bender. Did he read you your rights, Sam? Asked Harry. Negative. Crud knows his rights. Oh, is that right? Harry twirled the toothpick, which upset Bender. I'll send you the questions, but I still don't know what Crud learned up in Rio Martos. Damn it. Calm down, Don. Just submit your questions to my fax machine. Maybe leave now. Don't you have an email? No. Then go said Bender, waving his hand. I gestured for Harry to leave before me. Bender then slammed the door. I understand that he has an investigation going on here, I said as we walked toward the lobby. There's no excuse for Bender's damned attitude. Plus, he bounds on the edge of illegality. You were right to call me, Sam. Of course. Goodbye, cutie, he said to Linda as he winked. Goodbye, Mr. Cranston. I lay back on the sofa watching the early sports report. With the Dodgers already in the playoffs, the reports were uninformative and boring. I always kept the background sound on wherever I was hanging out. I also had the phone to my ear, having spent the last hour in meaningless conversation with Queenie at her condo. But that was okay, for obvious reasons. I'd have trouble going back to work after a couple days off. That's because you're never off, Sam. Plus, after getting in the tornado with Sam Crud, I look forward to a simple news report. You love the tornado. True. She said as my call waiting beeped. Hold on one second, Queenie, I have a call. No problem. I pushed the button. Sam Crud. Sam, Danny, I'm on my way to the hotel. I have information, plus I want to go over what you know. Sure, you want dinner? I already talked to Colonel Crocker. You like Cracker Jack, I said. I do, said Danny, laughing. I know you two have adversary personalities. That's just the opening act, Danny. Well, the Colonel already has a table set up for us in the grand dining room, Doreen. She's the Colonel's best waitress, I said. What's your ETA, Danny? Twenty minutes. You coming from Agora? I asked. Nah, the office in Pasadena. I'll get into my tux. You would do that, too. See you then, Sammy. I went back to Queenie on the first call. Queenie, can you come over to the hotel in about an hour? 
What's up? She asked. Danny Corus, my buddy with the FBI, has information. Really? Colonel already has made space for us in the dining room. Crocker likes government. We should be done pretty quick. When I arrived a short time later in my tux, the colonel performed the most dramatic double take I'd ever seen. Marion raised her hands to her mouth as she grinned. Crud, I don't ever think I've seen you in a tuxedo, said the colonel as he rounded the desk. He had just had his short hair trimmed even shorter. You're not exactly the fashion plate of Southern California, Colonel. I'm always in uniform. Your boxes are probably army issued, I said, needling him. They are. I regurgitated a deep laugh. <laughs> I was only kidding. The FBI after you, cried. Maybe, I said, letting the Colonel stew in his own conspiracy theories. And you'd think you're going to impress SAC Chorus with your lame tuxedo routine. Colonel, you're so damn cynical. Thanks for the table. Not for you, crud. I dusted my bow tie and headed toward the mostly filled dining room at the far end of the lobby. I approached the dining room and the dinner chatter volume increased. Pearl Westman, holding the gold frame menus, gave me a quick wave. Well, what do we have here? Getting your award tonight, Sam? I smiled slowly. Mr. Suave and Sophisticated of Oceanico Beach. Yes, the Colonel will be giving me the award. The only award the Colonel would give you would be a fully loaded tank. I tilted my head back and laughed. Actually, you do look pretty good, Sam. Of course. You want a drink until Mr. Chorus gets here? Usual. Borrego Springs Dark Brew. Like they brew that beer in Borrego Springs. Probably China, I said as I looked to my right. The Colonel personally walked upright, escorting the dark-suited Danny across the lobby. I'll get your beer to the table, Sam. Thank you, ma'am. Pearl pursed her lips, dipped her head, and then lip smiled. I called it the pearly blessing. Danny's dark eyes brightened, and he slapped me with a tight handshake. He had an endearing, full-toothed smile. Sammy, you did wear that tux, you bugger. The colonel sneered at me and then began ordering Pearl around. Make sure our agent Curris is comfortable. Thank you for your hospitality, Colonel, said Danny as he shook the Colonel's hand. You're welcome, sir. He arched his back and then he glanced at me. Crud? Then the Colonel marched back across the lobby. This way, Sam, said Pearl. Agent Curris? You know, Sam, your weight never changes. 257, right? Yeah, it never changes. It's been that way since freshman year. One of the waitresses, a redhead with short hair, moved her finger toward me. Arlene just started last week. Right, said Danny. His face physically changed into a serious countenance. What's the matter, Danny? I'm kind of off the racket right now. Okay. I don't mean... I mean, I don't have permission. My buddy's in trouble and I could be screwed if this backfires. Danny who? Same old Sam, he said, hitting my shoulder. Pearl seated us near the massive stone fireplace. Doreen will be right with you. Thank you, Pearl, I said and quickly sat down. You look like the Grim Reaper just rolled you over, Danny. Just as Pearl returned to the hall, the veteran waitress, Doreen Cosgrove, pushing 40, but moving as if she were 20 years old, scooted up to the table. Sam? Hello, Doreen. Doreen, this is Agent Curis from the FBI. Guess I better behave myself. Always a good idea, said Danny. Drink, Mr. Curis? Danny, Coke is fine. 
Zam, your Borrego Springs dark is on the way. I'll be right back. Danny smiled but had developed a cool, professional demeanor since college. Sam, I first have to say before we talk that you're dealing with something much bigger than you might have thought. I'm aware of that. Do you need a lawyer to talk to me, Sam? We take all night trying to find out what bar he's drinking at, I said. Danny grinned but got serious again. Do you know the name Leonard Constantini? Must have something to do with a pub in Morgan City called Constantine's. I don't know about that. Probably haven't heard of Constantini because he hasn't been around for years. He was incarcerated 11 years ago. He's up for parole in 18 months. Let me guess, Danny. Mr. Constantini and the late Al Compton became best buds at Escobedo. Danny stopped and sat up straight. I guess the private eye classes in Northridge paid off. Then he smiled his classic Danny smile. You're thinking Al Compton was just a basic loser. Yes. I think Al Compton was higher up than this, I said. Somebody was told to kill him, and they sent a woman, supposedly from Bellflower, up here to say that she was his sister because they needed to ID the body. Danny had his legal pad out of the briefcase and his pen in hand. Okay, let's get this from the beginning. Well, here's what I know. Stola was a phony who disappeared with her so-called sister. She had requested that she needed a P.I. Sergeant Martin had me talk to her. I had my friend Lucy stay with her while I viewed Al Compton's body. Stola's real name is Rebecca Langston, a.k.a. Becky Lang, a small-time actress at several studios. Danny raised his hands. Wait, do you mind if I record this conversation? No, go ahead. Danny removed her voice recorder that looked like a microphone and tucked the cover in his suit coat pocket. He clicked a red button on the recorder and then set it on the table. Doreen was back with the dark beer and coke and set the glasses on the table. Do you want a few minutes? Well, what do you suggest, Sam? Steak, well done, mashed potatoes and peas. Parisio Oceanico rolls with butter. Chocolate mousse for dessert. Make it two, said Danny, but medium on the steak. Very good. Comes with a large garden salad. So, somebody hired Lang and an older woman to check out Compton, said Danny. I sipped the beer and nodded. I believe Lang is associated with Inland Acres, a new living project in Chandler. How'd you come up with that? Okay, my buddy Woody and I drove to Finnegan's in Rio Martos. Why? Because Al Compton was unloading contraband in wood boxes at Richmond Express in Rio Martos and drank at Finnegan's. We asked for Al Compton when we got into Finnegan's. I can fill in the details later. I've got it all on my phone. You can transfer the data. Not really. I need approval for that. You can take it with you, Danny. I have another phone. Get your approval and then get it back to me. You sure? Yeah, nothing to hide here. So we get into this ruckus with these badass dudes at Finnegan's. Shots are fired and Woody drives the vet away through a donut drive through and we escape. Danny opened his eyes and sat up straight. Somebody got rattled about Compton. They just didn't like us in there. Then we have the Munson Hotel in Rio Matos. The manager Perez told us that Al Compton got chewed out big time, berated by two guys and an SUV driver named Naki. Sergeant Martin sent sketch artists up there. The sketches are in my phone. Martin gave them to you? No. I snapped the pictures when he left his phone on the table. 
Doreen and Kareem, a Middle Eastern waiter with matted dark hair, ride with the rolls, water, and salads. You have those sketches in the phone? I nodded and started in on the salad. And then there's Morgan City. Marty, Sergeant Martin. Well, we can get the sketches from him as well as the info he has. You two work together. Yeah, Marty told me early on that Al Compton was from Morgan City. There was a wife still up there. I had my assistant at the hotel check to see if Stoller, Lang, called anyone on the hotel phone or the empty suite in my lot. I also instructed him to snap photos from the surveillance video of Lang. My friend got numbers and photos of Lang and the other woman who showed up. That was probably supposed to be her sister. I took a gulp of beer this time and gave it all to Marty. Then a few days later, Marty tells me about the phone calls. She has a Riverside number that was routed to the bar I told you about in Morgan City. Well, that may be connected to Leonard Constantini. Well, it gets better. Danny opened his hands. Glad you called me. I drove to Morgan City in the vet. I took the long way around the mountains. I went into Constantine's that night, noticed the warehouse attached to the bar. The next day I checked the address Marty gave me for Al Compton. It's in a local builder's development, AM Builders. But I noticed something odd. Well, what was that? Asked Danny, leaning forward with folded hands. The banner. A newspaper from Chandler, unread from approximately 15 days ago. Very good, Sam. I can't wait to see where this is going. Well, that's coming. I went to the warehouse the next night through the basement. It was an abandoned building filled with seahorse plumbing supplies. I got caught by guys from the bar in yellow hoodies and then this thug pit bull named Roy. Anyone named Steve Ruthier or Craig Northrup? No, who are they? Lieutenants for Constantini. The short story is I got out of the building and saw them later loading up trucks. Address? Corner of Buckingham and Rockwell. Thanks. Danny sat up again. Why the hell isn't Marty in on this? Because his idiot boss has this investigative excellence program, aka how to make Lieutenant Bender look good. Oh, my sister Rose had something like that at work. How is Rose? Engaged. I smiled. Well, I dated her once. Once was enough for Rose. So when they ran the operation from the warehouse, they had someone bring the wood boxes with something worth a lot of money down to Richmond Express. Then they had Richmond pick up the shipments with other plumbing supplies from Morgan City. And should I guess from Richmond to Chandler? That would be a good guess, Danny boy. So you went out to Chandler, and if it were me, I would find the construction projects that used plumbing parts. I pointed at Danny as I finished my beer. We went to Inland Acres and met a saleswoman dressed similar to Lang. Danny raised his brows. There's a locked storage building that may contain those supplies because my friend and I couldn't find anything marked Seahorse Plumbing. Friend? The reporter, Maura McGonagall. C-75. Is that smart? Yes. And that's all you'll tell me? Yes. Uh, I get it. Never mind that. Two more things. One of the men that harassed Al Compton at the Munson, he's photographed on a wall mural, black and white, slightly blurred in the background, at the clubhouse at Inland Acres. Not part of the pose photo. And that's in your phone? Yes. He was a bushy-haired man in a suit coat. And there's a barn across the dirt, under a tree on a hill. 
That barn had a trailer stuffed inside. Interesting. And a pile of chipped rocks next to a ditch. Danny creased his brow. That's where I think they were going to bury Al Compton. Probably add a little cement. Explain. Okay, I found a berry from a plant called Catalina Manzanita on the walkway to the skiff where they found Al Compton. I had never seen that in Southern California. I brought it to Chippy. Dean Chippy? Dean Chippy. He got it to Swenson in the biology department. It grows on the mountain sides of the Channel Islands and Catalina. <laughs> you want to work for us? I like my gig. Woody and I took the high speed to Catalina. I thought the winds would shut those boats down. Oh, you don't know Woody's luck. Did you see any of the Catalina Manzanita? Asked Danny. Yeah, but it could have come from the Channel Islands. What did they leave and who picked it up? I don't know that, but it must have been continuous and then packed in Morgan City for sale, shipped to Rio Martos, and out to Chandler. Did Constantini direct this from jail, Danny? Very likely. So you're saying that someone met with Al Compton and then killed him, Sam. Why? Doreen and Kareem and two servers arrived with the steaks. I ordered another beer. Danny stored the recorder and filled the white linen tablecloth with a magnificent meal that I was all too happy to eat. Telling what I had learned drained my energy. Danny was livid that Bender had held Marty back in the investigation. He suggested I back off and even take a vacation away. Anything else, gentlemen? Fine, thank you, Doreen. She smiled as they retreated. Danny leaned toward me. Constantini acts without remorse. And they must know of your involvement. That bomb under your car should have been evidence of that. I hear you, Dan. I need your promise that while I work on this, that you stay out of it. You don't understand. My friend Lucy, the one that stayed with Lang, she was murdered, just like Al Compton slashed at the neck. I'm sorry, but you need to watch your backside, Sam. I'll think about it, I said, realizing how deep I had gotten into this. And I'd do it for Danny. Let Danny go over to Chandler and figure the rest of this out. And your TV friend. Queenie will be here shortly. Queenie? He asked. Speaking of names, I seem to remember a certain cheerleader named Sis Boom Ba. How the hell do you remember her, Sam? You asked her to marry you. I was young and innocent. Well, young. I pointed at Danny. Queenie is a good kid. I handed my smartphone to Danny. Here. Just get it back to me in a few days. Very good. Let's eat. When Danny and I crossed the lobby, the Colonel spoke with Queenie, gesturing with her hands near the sofa across from the check-in counter. Mrs. Colonel processed something for a family at the desk. Ah, Agent Curis, said the Colonel, bypassing me. I could see the Colonel was about to introduce Queenie to Danny. Queenie, this is Danny Curis. Hi, Danny. Nice to meet you, said Danny as the colonel's face reddened. A.K.A. Maura McGonagall, said Queenie. Sam will brief you on the conversation, Queenie. Can I be of any assistance, Mr. Curris, said the colonel. Actually, yes, colonel. My pleasure, said the colonel, grimacing briefly at me. I may get photographs of certain individuals to you in case they were in the Parisio Oceanico. We have 24-hour surveillance that we can review. I rolled my eyes at Queenie. Colonel, that is very helpful. Queenie, nice to meet you, said Danny. Sam, I'll get back to you tomorrow afternoon. Good. 
Good night, Colonel. Good night, sir. I thought the Colonel would salute, but he shook Danny's hand. As Danny walked toward the empty concierge desk in the front door, as the Colonel turned to me. Good man, Curtis. Carry on. The Colonel returned to his desk. You heard him, crud. Carry on, said Queenie, giggling. I intend to. You want to walk the beach? Should I trust you? She asked. Probably not, but I'll pick up Buster from the loft. He'll protect you. After the death of Lucy, Queenie and Sam had first become closer because of a mutual interest in the case, but the relationship evolves to more than just being colleagues. Sam, after a wild chase, returns to Oceanico Beach. He and Woody will track down the natural environment of the small berry he confiscated near the boat skiff, now identified by a professor at the college. I'm Robert P. Fitton on the catamaran, moving from Santa Catalina back to L.A. Ciao. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.